What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Gerald Valley here, and I want to thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of The Drop-In. I thank you guys all the time. All the time. I can't thank you enough. You take an hour out of your day, and maybe you're driving. Maybe you're painting the house. Maybe you're watering the grass. I don't know what you're doing, but I am in your ears, maybe massaging your eyeballs. I don't even know. I really don't know, but I want to thank you guys for taking the time to tune in to each week of The Drop-In. We bring in so many awesome guests, and today's episode is no different. The gentleman sitting across the table from me is a friend of mine. We met, I don't know, in the last five, ten years. We've been in the same places, same time, ran in a lot of the same rings of friends, and... Uh, and when I, I couldn't believe it when I asked him to come on the show, and he said, yeah, because his life is just really, really interesting. And as he sent me the bio, I, I only knew this much. I knew this much. So I'm super excited to bring Bill Bilotti to you today. But, um, you know, this show is to inspire you to get off your damn couch. Life is not a dress rehearsal. And, and if you're not doing what you love to do, it's your own damn fault. That's... What every guest brings to the table here. Every single guest has made shifts in their life. They made twists. They made turns. And they're doing what they're passionate about today. And that is the ultimate, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say underlying message, because that is the message I'm trying to get across by doing this show every week, bringing you unique stories of overcoming, of, of people developing and being comfortable in their own skin. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for you. It took me a long time. I'll tell you what, it took me 40 years to get comfortable in my own skin. 40 years. And then, actually, really about 43 years, but it, 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 it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight, and you make small changes, and your life starts shifting, and people start coming around you that are supposed to be around you, and all of a sudden, you're becoming this person that you can look in the mirror and go, I love you. 43 years, that's how long it took me to do that. And that's what I hope for you. So with that, I want to say thank you once again. You know, we have over 100,000 views worldwide. People are paying attention. People are watching. I get awesome, positive messages every week. And really, the guest is the star. The guests are the star of this show. And so with that, I want to introduce you guys to the most amazing uh, Mr. Bill Bilotti. Bill, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to come down here to the NRM studios and chill with me for an hour, man. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate the consideration. It's always uh, when when you reached out, um, I was very excited about it. You know, uh, because we do have a lot of the same background. You know, with skateboarding, music, and and just a lot of the same philosophy. So I'm I'm really stoked to be here. Yeah, <laughs> well, you, we're gonna open. I told you we were gonna open. Uh, Jess uh, said something about your beard. He's like, dude, that beard's out there. And you're like, it used to be even more out there. But what happened to your beard, man? <laughs> Uh, so I was um, I was lighting a candle and um, the flame got away from me and and singed uh, about a two inch uh, swath out of the middle of my beard so I had to cut it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> crazy things happen in life and you just go with the flow. You know, and and when we get into your story, that a lot of different twists and turns and going with the flow and, and developing empathy and compassion along the way. And we're going to talk all about that. But I want to start with where we always start with the drop-in. Uh, let's talk about your childhood. Where did you grow up? How was uh, growing up, family, that kind of thing? Uh, well, I mean, I was actually born um, uh, in uh, Brightmore, Detroit. 
uh, lived Not there. the easiest place to grow no. up. Um, I, uh, and it's funny. It's funny seeing that because just the other day I uh, had posted a picture, you know, of me. You know, obviously before I had any recollections of the world, but I think I was like maybe one and a half years old. But just seeing... You know, even back then, just, you know, trying to imagine what I was thinking, you know, what I was going through, what my life was like at that time, you know. Um, and, it, it, you know, it, it was pretty humbling. And, in fact, when I came back in, um, like, late August, I, I, I came back here, and uh, I actually went to my old neighborhood. You know, I took my camera, I went down there. Um, you know, it's still really a really rough area, but I, th I think a lot of times when you're just, um, you know, I never forget where I come from. You know, I never forget uh, my my beginnings. I don't even want to say that I had humble beginnings because I believe everything I went through has has prepared me for my individual place in this world, which is where I'm at today. So I don't even want to, you know, like downplay it by saying my humble beginnings because, you know, I originated from, you know, Brightmore, Detroit. Um, but it was just nice to, you know, to see be back where I grew up, you know, where my roots were. And I lived there till I was about seven. Um, on and off, you know, my mom was, uh, my mom was going through her, her own troubles and, and tribulations at that time. So we moved around a lot, you know, and things finally started to kind of stable out when I was about seven. My mom got married and uh, we lived in Taylor. Um, and, you know, that's where I got started to get a little bit of stability, you know, in my life, in my existence. And, you know, but by the age of eight, I was I was just I was so independent, you know what I mean? Because um, I just didn't have a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of nurturing. There wasn't a lot of um, uh, I was like my own tour, my own tour guide in this thing we call life, you know. At where, eight years old. At eight years old, you know, I mean, I was a latchkey kid, and I just had had so much freedom and so much room to make my own decisions by eight years old. I mean, I was a kid at ten years old that picked a typewriter over a bike. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, that's why, you know, I had this duality to me where, you know, um, I think, you know, part of me, I, you know, I grew up too quick, but, you know, I don't I don't have any regrets. Yeah. You know, um, How was high school? You know, in Taylor, I have a lot of friends. Um, many of my skateboard friends that I met at a young age uh, were from around the Taylor Lanes area. And Taylor is a, a, a huge city. It's a suburb of Detroit, and it is a giant city. And uh, those guys are still my friends to this mm -hmm. day, Al Gardner and, yeah, oh yeah. and, and Brian oh, Eric. And those guys are still my friends today. How was, you know, elementary school, high school, those kinds of things? Um, I don't, you know, elementary was pretty, you know, pretty basic. I don't remember anything, you know, earth shattering in, in elementary school. Um, you know, junior high, you know, uh, starting to deal with a little bit more, you know, uh, you know, like, you, you know, you're going through puberty, you're starting to go through all these where you actually care who your friends are and, you know, society and where you're going to fit in and, and kind of working through those things. And that's where the shift kind of came because before that, you know, um, a lot of my life consisted of like sports, like team sports, baseball, football, um, things like that. And, you know, it was when I, it, it was my last year in junior high, about eighth grade is when I really started to trans, you know, like when I hit 13 years old, a lot of stuff happened, you know. I have goosebumps on my whole body right now because we're more similar than, <laughs> than I would even imagine because almost the same thing. Hockey has always been a big part of my life, but up to that point, 
I was playing baseball. Mm -hmm. I tried football. I did those mm -hmm. things. But around that time is when I discovered skateboarding and punk rock, and mm -hmm. things shifted. Exactly. So I didn't mean to, to no, cut you off, but I'm like, come on, dude. Are you talking about my life or your life? You know. <laughs> but so seventh, eighth grade, you know, going into high school, those those years, a huge shift. Yeah, a huge shift. Um, where you know the team sports and stuff, I felt like I was just kind of on autopilot, living somebody else's life. You know, like I was, you know, playing baseball and football more for my parents than I was for me and it just quit making sense to me and um you know um I'd always I, I've always listened you know I was like five six years old listening to like ACDC Iron Maiden stuff like that so it was never really um but like even Motown and stuff too my mom me and my mom you know it was one gift my mom uh did bring to my life was a, a diversity of, of music um but you know at 13 you know I I kind of put the, ba the bats down and, and hung the cleats up and grabbed it, you know, I grabbed the skateboard and um, I remember, uh, and you probably know him, John Reinholds, and uh, so we were riding his launch ramp and someone, so I forget who it was, but someone had negative approach playing in their car and that was it. I was hooked. I Opie, heard, Opie has been on the show, man. I heard, the, I heard nothing from negative approach and that was it. I was, I was hooked. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, skateboarding was just, it, it was, you know, because I believe skateboarding at the time was just more of who I was. It was more of this independent, you know, thing that I could accomplish, you know, where I was challenged, you know, by the people that I skated with. But it was more about me, you know, um, challenging myself, pushing my limits, you know, and, and, and I just felt a, a greater sense of satisfaction than I did playing team sports, you know. Um, and there's no uniform. There's no practice. Exactly. You're doing your own thing, you know. Which, you know, kind of goes with, you know, punk rock and hardcore and everything where, you know, um, you know, I found this group of people that didn't really care how I dressed. They didn't really care how, you know, uh, my socioeconomic background or, you know, it was just, it was about the music. And that's the thing that really drew me in, you know. And it wasn't always like that. There, I mean, you did fine. It's society. You know, you're dealing with sociology, psych psychology. So within any culture, you're going to have that, you know. But for the most part, it was just a bunch of people that, you know, kind of felt like I did. And, you know, we had that common bond of music and not everybody rode a skateboard. You know, I did. And, you know, I never I was never um, I never made uh, uh, apologies for who I was. And that's what I loved about it. You know, yeah, it's it was such a great time. And, and you're exactly right. You know, when you uh, found another person who rode a skateboard who, or who listened to hardcore, punk rock, it was an instant brotherhood, especially, you know, 86, 87 for me. Mm -hmm. yep. if, you saw somebody, if you saw somebody wearing Vans, you immediately, like, knew they searched it out, and yeah. you were friends already like yeah. that. And that's how I became friends with the guys uh, that I mentioned earlier, Al Gardner and, and Tony Alves and all those mm -hmm. guys, because we knew... Uh, we each had to search out. You couldn't just go to the corner and buy a skateboard. Mm -hmm. You either had to order it or drive mm -hmm. or, or whatever. And with music, same kind of thing. You know, you weren't finding a negative approach record at Harmony House. Exactly. You had to figure it out and find <laughs> exactly. it. And uh, and so it was a cool time. Um, high school, you know, did you, you know, graduation? You just Did you have, uh, at that time, for, for me anyway, th they were pretty much saying you have to go to college, you know. Yeah. For you, was it like that at all? Mine was, uh, I don't think my, I, th I think my parents, you know, they didn't really push me for college because um, I think they seen a disconnect. I mean, by the age of 16, I had gone to, re I had gone to rehab uh, for the first time at the age of 16. Um, and I actually didn't even graduate high school. I actually uh, went and got my GED. 
And uh, I, you know, I, I, I was. It's, it was such a turbulent time in my life then because that's about the time that I became homeless for the first time was at 16, where my parents just couldn't. They didn't know what to do with me, you know. Um, and I, you know. So I mean that that changed a lot of stuff. Just being homeless and 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 having to um, rely on myself to survive, you know, and uh, you know that it was on and off, you know, till I was about twenty twenty one, and um, uh, I then uh, was uh, actually a union carpenter, you know. So I, I I joined the union that gave me kind of a sense of purpose, at least somewhere to be, something to do, a way to you know. Um, you know, uh, uh, provide for myself. I didn't even go to college till I think I was about 24 is when I went to college. And, um, I went to, uh, Henry Ford took like an aptitude test and, you know, went there for two semesters to establish a GPA. And then I transferred to, uh, Eastern and I studied, uh, literature and composition with a, a concentration in teaching, never used it, <laughs> but you know, it was, a, I, I think back then it was more about just, um, proving to myself that, you know, maybe there was a part of me that could adhere to those societal norms. You know, it was a co pretty cool community at you know. that time around Ipsy, you know, where Eastern yeah. Michigan is. It had a pretty cool music scene, yeah. decent skateboard scene. The Ann Arbor guys mm -hmm. were a little bit ahead of, of us yeah. in the skateboard world and the music world as well. Yeah, so, I mean, college was, college was a good thing. And, um, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really... Um, I didn't really, I guess, understand what I had accomplished till you know a, a few years later when I when I got sober, you know, because I had really struggled with sobriety. Um, I mean, and that was, but that was a pivotal thing at the age of sixteen, you know, going to rehab because after going to rehab, you know, even though it didn't stick, I was no longer able to claim ignorance mm -hmm. to what was happening, you know, that um, you know, even if it, you know, I I, I seen the medical, the science side of it. Um, the psychological side of it, you know, the addiction aspect of it. And so I was no longer able to claim ignorance to my addiction um, because I had the tools. I'd been introduced to the tools and, and, the, and the solution. At a very young age, yeah. 16 is very young to, uh, to go to rehab. Yeah, so. Well, how did you end up in Texas? Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, it was about 19, 1999, and um, my, uh, my drinking and my drugging was just it's, it, it was just in a really bad place, and um, my, the reality is, is I, I just I, I really thought that I needed to change the scenery, or I was going to either end up dead or in prison, one of the two. And so I really, in in essence, what happened is I really ended up taking my alcoholism on tour, you know, because you know uh, I, I thought maybe the geographical cure was going to you know was, was in order, but it, it, obviously it wasn't. Um, but I had gone out to the East Coast, um, out to California. Uh, I was in Oregon for a little bit and um, ended up in Texas and uh, ended up meeting a girl and uh, that was that was that so <laughs> but I mean you know it was just I mean that was you know that was the uh, that was really it you know I, I was still living a very dysfunctional a very dysfunctional uh, existence at that time so what um, what was it? that helped you make the decision that sobriety, you need to get sober, you're going to die? Because that's ultimately what I had to do. You know, I had to rehab three times, mm -hmm. you know, 40% blood alcohol content. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. it was, I was well on my way 
to uh, to be in six foot under for sure. And it was just one day. People ask me all the time, "What was it?" I said, "I looked in the mirror and I said that ain't you, dude. Like that just isn't you." And I never drank again. And I would do whatever I had to do not to drink again. What was it for you? Well, here's the insanity of my disease. Is um, you know, I, I had had multiple uh, DWIs, and I got my last DWI, DWI in 2004. And the state of Texas could have pulled all of them because they were all within 10 years. So they could have pulled all my D- DWIs from other states, and they could have nailed me. And that's a felony. I could have been I could have been doing uh, anywhere from two to six years, you know. But you know, um, here's the reality of what happened: is um, I was actually I got that DWI, and I you know I just thought to myself, you know, this is the end of the road. You know, there's no way I'm not going to prison. You know, on on this, and um, so in December I had court in January. So in December I had gone home to kind of visit people for the last time for a while, and we were downtown. And I can't remember the bar we were at, but it just it quit working. I wasn't getting drunk. Um, the you know, so then I tried switching to drugs. The drugs weren't working. So it was almost like you know something in the universe intervened and took away that defense because I just I couldn't get drunk. I was not getting drunk. I was not. The drugs weren't, you know, working. Nothing was working, and I was terrified because, for the first time in a very long time, I didn't have that defense, that uh, defense, you know, against, you know, my feelings and the world that was surrounding me. Uh, and I actually spent the next three days curled up in the fetal position on my mom's couch in the basement, and uh, then flew back to Texas, um, confronted the courts, uh, and believe me, I was on the computer every day, making sure that it was still, you know, first, slated as a first offense. You know, because I, I would check the computer every day, you know, seeing if they were going to change the charges. And it ended up first offense and um, ended up with 18 months probation. Of course, all the, you know, classes and everything that go with it. And, you know, um, I managed to make it through my probation, did everything that was expected of me, was actively, you know, actively uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, and then it was towards, I think it was about three months from being off probation, I started to get this fear, you know of, you know, am I going to be able to do this without probation, without the babysitter? Right, without somebody saying, if you touch that, these are the consequences. When those chains or that structure is lifted off, is it going to be a free-for-all again? Exactly, because, you know, two times prior, I was on probation, and, you know, here I am again. You know, so, I mean, that was a big fear of mine, and um, it was kind of like, you know, uh, growing, you know, they call it, like, I was 31 years old when I got sober this last time, and it's like growing up in public, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so, when I got off probation, it was almost like, you know, um, like taking the training wheels off my bike, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because it was, I mean, I, I, in the back of my head, believe me, you know, it's like, okay, if I don't, if I don't do this and do it well, I'm going, I'm going to go do some jail time, you know, um, but that's the reality of, of the insanity of my disease is that, you know, even that wasn't enough, obviously, to that wasn't enough of a, uh, a deterrent because, well, I got another DWI and I was still doing crazy things. Um, so, I mean, I think it was really that spiritual, you know, episode uh, in the bar in Detroit where it just it wasn't working. Yeah, uh, they call it, a you know, the catchphrase is moment of clarity or whatever. <coughs> and... Uh, 
again, I, I say, people ask me, they're like, what was it, man? What was it? I don't have an explanation for what it was. Yeah, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't point to it. <laughs> right, and it sounds like a, a very similar kind yeah. of thing for you. Something bigger than you was at work because yeah, uh, in, in our state, in the state we're in, we're not going to stop. Uh, it has to be something bigger that works. And no matter what your belief system is, if you believe in God, Ralph, Mary, Buddha, Muhammad, there's something bigger out there. And uh, I'm glad it happened for you yeah, because absolutely. we wouldn't be sitting here talking. I could almost guarantee that because no. you'd be dead or in prison. Uh-huh. Uh, man, wow, what a powerful story, dude. Thank you so You're much welcome. for sharing it here on The Drop-In. Uh, so when did, when did your... Uh, I'm going to say affection for animals come into play because uh, it became a big thing for you when you were in Texas. And, and was that part of your sobriety? It, uh, it, it absolutely it was indirectly. And I think the only reason that um, that aspect of my life even got off the ground and, and where it is today is because it wasn't my plan. You know, um, I was actually I'd actually, actually taken a job um, at a local shelter, uh, animal shelter, um, and this dog came in and you know I, to, to this day again you know it's kind of like the whole spiritual you know moment of clarity why this dog why this dog imprinted on me <laughs> i mean I, I had you know i was I, I was managing the the back the kennel area and so I'm, i mean i'm just you know i have this overabundance of dogs you know that i'm bathing and i'm walking i'm feeding i'm interacting with and for whatever reason this dog is the dog that imprinted on me and it was just kind of this spiritual thing where you know this dog was you know amber was um you know 15 pounds underweight underweight you could tell she had just weaned a, a litter of pups 65 percent hair loss from uh, what ended up being a flea allergy but this dog i mean this dog looked like a wreck and she just her head was up and she was just like I'm like, I want her mirror. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because she, she was just so stoic and she had uh, so such a sense of, of dignity. Um, and at that time, the, the, the really, um, at that time, uh, in the, the shelters down in Texas, there was no, it wasn't like it is today. You know, there was no rescue partners. There was no, there was nothing for American pit bull terriers other than the only way they were getting out of a shelter alive is if the owner came and redeemed it. Other than that, they were put down automatically. Um, and so that began this, you know, journey of, um, you know, that me and her would, would embark on. And um, I, I, I had kept in touch with two uh, people that were doing uh, a rescue at that time. And at that time, which was 2003, um, they were uh they had like 10 15 years of experience already now were they already called the gulf coast bully breed rehabilitation no, it wasn't even gulf it, that wasn't even formed yet Amber, okay. amber's the dog that formed that um but so what they did is they created an aptitude test then uh gave it to you know uh emailed it to my director my director printed it off and i had to take it two separate times just to make sure she wanted just to make sure but it was basically my knowledge of you know canines overall training and 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 um care to see if i was you know if i had the skills to because because this was a, a big thing for them they were releasing an american pit bull terrier you know from the uh, uh, uh shelter to someone other than the owner so the, i mean she was the very first dog in that in that county and that shelter to be released from a shelter 
And in the early 2000s, it was such a hot-button topic throughout the 2000s, pit bulls and, and what the public was perceiving at that time. Yeah, and, and, and there wasn't, I mean, back then it was, uh, you, you know, I was under a lot more fire than I am today. You know? I'm sure. And it's like I tell people, you know, um, you know, I started rescuing, you know, pit bulls, you know, before it was cool. You know, because back then there wasn't a whole lot of people doing it, and there definitely wasn't the following that it has today. You know, where today, you know, it's almost like people want to put the American Pit Bull Terrier on a pedestal, and I'm, I don't really agree with that. You know, my, my, my journey was always for them just to be dogs. Yeah, yeah. To just have the same right as any other dog. You know, I, it's like I t- would tell people when I was, you know, in the height of my rescue, don't put me on a pedestal. I don't, I don't, I don't want that drop. You know, I'm just, I'm doing what I'm passionate about, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be a pedestal. I don't want all the pats on the back. You know, that's not what this is about. So, you know, Amber was that very pivotal, you know, but the reason Amber was so pivotal in my life is because she was kind of that bridge back to humanity. Because at that time, I still had, I had no use for human beings. You know, I didn't trust anybody uh, because I didn't trust myself, you know, I, I was learning, I was starting to learn that all this distrust and, you know, you know, uh, resentment I had towards society, my parents, whoever, was really manifesting itself inside of me because I didn't trust me. I didn't trust me and I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and I couldn't, you know, find any tangible, you know, essence in my existence where I was, you know, worth, you know, worth anything. Um, and. You know, it's kind of uh, working with, you know, working with dogs and, and is, is where I learned that empathy. And I started to, to learn um, the life skills I needed to be able to be accepting of other people, you know. Um, so it was, that's when, you know, Gulf Coast, Bully Breed, Rehabilitation kind of kind of took its form. And um, that was from uh, 2003 to uh, 2000, like right on the border, like late December 2010. Now, um, you know, I want to talk about sobriety a little bit more because in rehab, you know, sometimes they tell you to get a plant. I mean, they'll tell you to get a dog just to start learning empathy in different things. So your story resonates with me quite a bit. Uh, I, 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 I don't even know what to say because I'm sitting over here and I said a few minutes ago, goosebumps all over my whole body. Because so many similarities, so many things that I can relate to uh, from 03 to 2010-ish, uh, you know, how many dogs, how many dogs uh, came uh, through there, you know? Oh, God. <laughs> if I had to guess, probably around, somewhere around 500. That's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. And then um, in 2011, uh, you end up coming back to Michigan. What brought you back to Michigan? Um, just I, I was starting to pay attention, you know, um, to everything that was going on in Detroit, you know, surrounding the dogs. Um, not only the dog fighting, but just like the, um, you know, at that time there was that, that big uprising about, oh, my God, there, you know, that there was 50, you know, there was all these claims that there was 50,000 stray dogs in the city of Detroit. Um and I so it, 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 exactly. I mean, there would be 349 dogs per square mile. I worked. I worked in the city. I worked right across from Russell <laughs> Industrial Center. But, and there was one time in that 11-year period where I saw three dogs walking down the tracks together. You know, and I was skateboarding, so maybe a little bit big. But anyway, it brought you back to the city. Yeah, it was just you know, um, 
it's my hometown. Yeah. You know, um, just some things that um, I was married at that time. So there were just, you know, certain things that, you know, that kind of directed us, uh, you know, um, work-wise and stuff like that. And um, a house was offered to me. So, I mean, everything just kind of clicked. And, you know, I came up here and um, we just, you know, I... I I changed it to Detroit. Uh, we were first Detroit Bully Crew, but then there was some copyright, you know, infringements over that. So rather than battle it, I just, you know, I just we changed it to Detroit Bully Corps, you know. And um, but I mean, the mission, everything was still the same. And you know, I mean, in the beginning, you're 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 met. I mean, I still had my 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 personal base of friends, but as far as like the rescue community. Uh, building relationships with the city of Detroit and, um, you know, different, you know, uh, humane organizations. Um, it was just about, you know, doing what we said we were going to do. Like when, when we sat across from people and, and talked to them, we lived it. You know? And what happens um, a rescue? What how does it work for our viewers? You know, we hear rescue like uh, I have a dog and it became, it came from a tex Texas rescue. Mm. Um, what do you do? You take them in, you rehab them and, and get them back out into society. What can you explain uh, that a little bit? I mean, we uh, when we when we when we were here as DBC, we actually had um, number one, we had our ag accreditation. So we were actually a shelter. Um, um, uh, we had, you know, we were a uh, 501c3. We had our ag accreditation, which meant, you know, our housing had to be, you know, up to up to standard. Uh, we had to go through random inspections. We had to do upgrades, things like that. But as far as like the dog coming in, um, the dog, you know, we primarily got our dogs um, off the street, high kill shelters, out of you know bad situations where they didn't have a situation to go into. Um, we didn't really take a whole lot of owner surrenders unless there was some really um, extenuating circumstances i got cancer my house is my house blew up something like that just because of the fact that you know accountability to me accountability is a big thing so i'm not trying to make it easier for people just to you know dump their dogs mm -hmm. um and so i mean the dogs come in they go through a, a decompression period uh which can be anywhere from two two weeks to four weeks uh depending on medical we have to get them healthy um, and that 30-day period allows the dog to just kind of take a breath. You know, we're not asking anything of it. Um, someone would be assigned to that dog. That dog would um, then, you know, primarily be handled by that dog. Feeding, medical, everything. The dog was building, learning to build a bond with a, a human being. And we would, you know, we would pick the, the human based on the dog's, you know, natural, what the dog naturally was willing to give at that time. We would match it with one of our, you know, um, me, my wife at that time, or you know, whoever was going to be the best fit for it, and you know, so then we, you know, we we start with like hand feeding, all kinds of bonding work, you know, getting the dog to eat out of our hand, not just giving it a food bowl, you know, we want the dog to start attaching itself to humans, you know, so everything was good, everything was happy, you know, um, just allowing the dog to come in, go in and sitting in the room with the dog and. You know, introducing leashes, collars, you know, all the things that they're going to face. And then once they go through that decompression period, then we start, you know, introducing them to a little bit more. You know, we start, you know, going on leash walks. We start, you know, introducing them to the house, you know. Um, you know, and, and, and thank God, you know, we, we just we had the resource, you know, and, and the property and the facility that, you know, it was all about them, you know. So. They were allowed to do all those things, you know, and learn about, you know, um, boundaries, you know, because the, the biggest thing for me mentally was I had to wrap my, my mind around the fact that these are not my dogs. 
I was thinking that this the whole my, time. Like, this how is do not you, my dog. <laughs> right, so, how do you do that? So you that? have to you have to build this training regimen. You have to build this training regimen, you know, that uh, you're building skills and behaviors in this dog to get it adopted into anybody's home. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants a dog on the couch. Not everybody wants their dog in the bed. So these dogs were taught to respect couches. You know, here, here's a dog bed, you know. Um, not everybody wants their dog in the kitchen. So the dogs were, were taught all those things, you know, how to respect the boundaries in the house. Um, because, you know, uh, we, did, we were trying to give these dogs every chance imaginable to go into for their first adoption to be their last adoption, you know. Um, and we didn't have very, we had, we had a very small percentage of dogs that came back because uh, our training and our method was so in-depth that if we adopted out 20 dogs in a, in a fiscal year, I was ecstatic because our dogs came in and they stayed with us a minimum of, of six months. Wow. You know what I mean? Um, if we we only we didn't have too many puppies, but you know, even if the few times we had a litter of puppies, they stayed with us till they were at least four months old because we wanted to see the behavior that we were sending out. You know, a lot of people at eight weeks old they don't understand that puppies aren't playing. That's their behavior. Take that and add you know whatever whatever that breed is. Add the adult weight to it because that's you're gonna have the same behaviors. It's just like us psychologically. You know, the development years between three and five. You know that we're pretty much, you know, uh, you know, building who we're going to be. So puppies are the same way. And you guys did some really, really cool stuff as far as fundraisers. That's when uh, we ended up running into each other again. I think it was like the Miami Stalefish was playing, yep. and and you were yep. doing a fundraiser. And that's when <laughs> I really got to know uh, about the organization. Uh, you know, you said you talked about dealing with the city and stuff like that. Was there any huge backlash as you continue to move forward and prove your worth um i mean there's always backlash and the, the rescue world is a, is a very cutthroat world i mean that's you, on that i can't even believe that and and the, the the reason it is that way is simply because you have so many uh humane organizations fighting for the same pie there's like one p there's one pie you know as in the pie represents like grants uh, uh donations from the public and, and, and all the avenues and, and ways to create money and resource to fund your, you know, your mission. So, I mean, even us with, with ag accreditation, you know, we were registered with the state, with LARA, you know, 501c3, all of it. We had everything. And it's still, it's very difficult to get grants. You know, uh, we got lucky, like a Burns-O-Matic, um, Nicole, um, the um, rehab addict, Nicole, uh, God, I can't remember her last name. But anyways, uh, Burns-O-Matic had um, a $10,000 grant, and we were able to, you know, we, we won that, which allowed us to build our training fields and, uh, you know, do some upgrades to, you know, give more, um, um, you know, resource for the dogs. But the reality is, is we never had a, an annual budget. You know, we never had anything to base our year moving forward off of. It was always straight hustle. We were always hustling week to week, sometimes day to day, you know, how we're, how we're going to get dog food, how we're going to, you know, pay for all the supplies, you know, and, and you know, because here we have living, breathing, you know, things that need 24-hour care. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was very, you know, stressful sometimes as far as, like, where the resource was going to come from. Well, and I was pretty impressed. I think it was around 2015 I emceed an event, uh, like your year-end gala or something like yeah, that, Kimberly Thone. Detroit um, Beach Boat Club. Yeah, that was incredible. Was. I, I remember calling the day before going, you know, I'll, I'll, 
you know, jeans and a t-shirt, because I'm thinking punk rock yeah. show, I end up showing up in a suit, and it's like the real, like, it was yeah. the real deal, and it had some great, the giant stand, cardboard stand-ups, yeah. and just some really cool yeah, stuff. Taco. When yeah, Taco. When you worked, you walked in, there was Taco. That was, <laughs> yeah. that was a Bark Nation, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was a really cool event. Um, what year did you decide to step away from DBC? Um, it was uh, mid-2017, uh, the stress was just getting to me. Um, that year, I was in the emergency room four times, you know, with the understanding. I, I mean, I, I absolutely thought I was having a heart attack, you know. And uh, every time I would go in, they would say, you know, it's you're not having a heart attack, it's stress. Your heart's fine, your lungs are fine, your blood's fine, everything's fine. You know, so, I mean, that began the process just because I had kind of given it that, you know, quiet um, – uh, you know, where I just said to myself, you know, if we don't, if we don't find a way to maintain this thing with some kind of annual budget, I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it, mm-hmm. you know, spiritually, mentally. Uh, and I always, you know, said to myself and everybody else, you know, when, when, when this gets to that point where it loses the fire inside me and that, that fire, I feel that fire starting to extinguish, you know, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to, you can't do this half-assed, half-hearted. Right. You know what I mean? These are living, breathing things that are depending on you. And they'll um, know it in a minute. And they'll know it. You know, you can't lie to a dog. Right. You know, um, and so, you know, I made the decision, and and I talked it over with my wife at that time, and, um, you know, we made the decision, then we presented it to the the board, but, you know, what a lot of people don't understand, it was actually uh, early 2017 because it took us a whole fiscal year to actually shut it down. You know, because we had to find places for these dogs to go, you mm-hmm. know. So at that time, we had, we, you know, the dogs were either being adopted or we were holding interviews where, like, other rescue groups would come out to our facility to learn what the dogs needed, you know, to maybe do a rescue transfer, um, you know. And, and so, I mean, it was this long process where we still, you know, had to, you know, hustle. We still had to hustle, mm-hmm. you know. Because we still had to have the resource needed, even though we were closing down. And you better believe, you know, because I'm just not that way. I don't, I don't believe in keeping people in the dark. Like my, I, I wasn't gonna lie to my donors and say at the very last minute, you know, hey, we're closing. Right. You know, I announced it, knowing full well that you know our, our donations were gonna plummet because you know that's just the way it is. People are like, you know, you what you did was what you're doing and what you did is great, but you guys are closing down. So now we're going to transfer that to somewhere, you know, somewhere else to somebody who's still, you know, got that long-term vision, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it got really rough. It got really rough. And, um, but it was just, uh, you know, I, I don't regret, I, I don't regret any of it. I just, you know, and, you know, when I came back to Detroit this time, you know, everybody's asking me if I was going to start, you know, Detroit Bully Corps back up. And I said, if you see D- DBC up and running again, then you know I won the Powerball. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I just I won't I won't do it like that again. Well, when you're yeah. running on a shoestring budget yeah. and you're giving so much of yourself to the animals, yeah. I mean, uh, that's an incredible stress from all sides, not yeah. just one part of your life. And then trying to balance like a marriage, and yeah, a family, and it's just it's really. And so when did you pick up a camera? Because, I mean, we're, um, we're actually, this show moves so quick, Bill. We have, like, seriously, like, 18 minutes left. Okay. Um, um, I want to talk a little bit about your photography because I love what you do with music. I love yeah. your music photography. But then when you started posting up the stuff of the, the shore breaks and yeah. things you had, 
I was, I, I'm like, I need some of these framed in my house because I, I love what you're doing. When did you pick up a camera, dude? Uh, the first time I picked up a camera um, was 1996. I was uh, a girl I was dating at that time. Uh, actually, had a photography class, so she would. She would let me come into the uh, the labs. I would sneak in the labs, and she would show me how to develop. So, I mean, that's when that... I actually took my very first picture ever with a Quaker Oats cam, and, uh, a quick, uh, can of Quaker Oats, and it was a pinhole camera. Dude, pinhole so, cameras yeah. are money. You know Everything's I mean? in so, focus. It's so cool, and you you, know, you so. can jump in frame, jump out of frame. I, I, uh, that's the only camera I've ever, like, made yeah. myself and actually used. So it was just... Um, you know, that's when I picked it up, and I just kind of off and on through the years. Really about, you know, 2011, 2000, yeah, late 2011 um, is when it really kicked into, you know, high drive, you know. And um, I just, you know, really since then, I really, you know, spent a lot more time developing my style, my vision. That was the biggest thing, developing my vision, you know, not what what I wanted to say. Not trying to emulate anybody else's style, not worrying about who liked it, you know, who liked it and who didn't like it, but just, you know, that I looked at, you know, I, I like the fact that I look at my pictures and I can pick my, you, you could put a hundred pictures up and I'll pick mine up. You know what I mean? Um, I think the the best compliment to date that I've ever gotten on my photography is just that it's, it's fearless. I love this one, this picture that's showing. Yeah. I love that photo. You sent a boatload and I actually tried to include almost all of them throughout our show today. And here's some of those shore breaks. Yeah, that dude. was La Jolla, California. Oh, they're so rad. Uh, and, and, and your music, you know, uh, music's been a big part of your life. That's Detroit. Yeah. That's I love that one. Yeah. Just some, I mean, they, they capture these images and, and you can feel it. You it's, can it's feel co- it. It's cool seeing them on that monitor because now I know it can blow them up and have them framed. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you I've can, never seen them that big. That's cool because yeah. you can feel it. Your 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 eye is very unique, and and even your music shots. Like I can yeah. tell your shots of a of a live show. And uh, it's really really in the last year. I'm going to say in the last year. Really, I've started to. If you notice, if you the chronological order of my photography, where I'm not taking so many crowd shots and I'm not using so much wide angle, I'm actually using you know, um, you know, where I'm zooming in and actually getting you know, I'm trying to capture the true essence of what these musicians are trying to say, mm-hmm. you know, the facial expressions and just you know the wrinkles on the face or like getting the pressure of the fingers on the strings and just you know the true what I what, what I felt to me you know getting the more intimate aspects. Of, of you know what these artists are doing on stage so I mean that's been a little bit of a difference you know and I and, you know even even if it's like you know it, it doesn't matter who it is you know I, I did it with you know uh, negative approach you know uh, scarhead was here I mean I'm, I'm doing all of that because at the end of the day they're all artists and they're all trying to you know just like me this is their vision this is their voice so that's more of what I'm trying to capture nowadays yeah and you were all uh, black Christmas I was there you were there uh, you, you capture it great. This angle is a good one of you. I, li- yeah, <laughs> I like this one. shot. <laughs> that made me laugh because uh, I love your facial expression. Yeah. Everything about this picture is really... Po- poison tongues are definitely one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, they are rad. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come down here to the NRM studios and visit with us here Absolutely. on the drop-in. Um, one other thing I want to touch on is uh, has your camera helped with um some things you deal with as far as anxiety and stuff absolutely um and and i realized after the drink you know after i got sober that i i had all this social anxiety and that was probably 
a big reason that the alcohol and, and drugs were such a big part of my life because they took that away. They took away the anxiety. They took away the, you know, so, I mean, my camera has really allowed me to be back at shows. I mean, um, there was no way I could have um, attended um, This Is Hardcore in Philadelphia. And we're, we're talking a four-day music event, you know, 60 bands. And, um, you know, I finally, I've been asking year after year to get on it. And I finally got on, you know, Joe finally said yes as far as, you know, letting me be a part of the camera crew. And it was the most exhilarating, probably one of the most exhilarating things I've ever done. But there's no way I could have done it without my camera because my camera allows me to shrink my, shrink my world. It gives me this finite focus um, where, like, I hear everything going on around me, but I'm able to, you know, it just gives, gives me this focus, you know, through the lens of that camera that takes away, you know, the anxiety. It takes away the the um, totality of like this, these huge crowds you know what I mean and so it was just it's what allows me to even be at small shows you know um, I mean I don't really have any trouble you know being in bars and anything, as far as from like the drinking and drugging aspect but you know there's still a lot of uh, uh, anxiety you know and my camera and my photography have really helped me to uh, you know um, develop, you know, a, a different social, you know, um, stance, and, and it enables me to, I've met so many brilliant people, you know, through my camera. Well, and it, we shot together a few weeks ago, and I, I just was watching you do your thing, and you had your, you know, your iPod in, and you were doing your mm-hmm. thing, and, you, and you were, you were just in your own world, you know, I, I think we, we, we spoke a little bit, mm-hmm. but really, I was doing my thing, you were doing yeah, your just, thing, and it worked. And I tell people that a lot, you know, like there's certain people that are like, well, you know, it'd be really cool to go shoot with one in, one day. And I'm just like, you know, I tell people when, when I, as soon as that camera is in my hand, I just, I go somewhere. Definitely. You know I mean? I'm trying, I was trying to stay out of your guys' way. I'm always very respectful of whatever, you know, whether I'm at a concert, uh, shooting, skating, surfing, whatever. Because my, my, with my, with my um, photography, I want the most natural rendering possible. Even when I do the, the one-on-one work with models, you know, I'll let them know we'll develop uh, what we're going to do. But I tell them, I'm going to be shooting you when you're not looking. Those are the, those are the you know, I don't, I, don't want, I don't like things that are staged. I want to capture life as, it, as it's happening. You know, so, I mean, that's the, the big reason I kind of drop back a little bit because I, I really want people to forget the cameras there. Yeah, you know, and just be be a you know you know humans being so. Well, and that that shows in your photography for sure. Um, you know, we're gonna get back to the dogs because you stepped away from DBC, you know, and you're doing your thing. Well, now you uh, have really focused still with with the canines on training. Um, how, when did that start, and, and um, how well, have you developed it? Because it's not easy. I had some some really good mentors um, that I worked with. Um, you know, during all the years of, of rescue. Um, so, I mean, I really learned to train dogs out of necessity to make sure that our dogs were getting um, the best, you know, uh, resource possible. And we really couldn't afford to hire trainers all the time as a rescue. So, I mean, I learned to, you know, work with dogs out of necessity. And, you know, after, you know, I stepped away from DBC and came back this time, I just felt like I was going to be more of a resource and asset to dogs by training, offering low-cost training um, to keep dogs in the homes, to take away the need for rescue or a shelter. You know, as great as rescue and, and, and all that is, I'm like, how about we just skip that and just keep dogs in their homes? 
you know. And so through the same resources and same contacts that I had in rescue, um, I kind of told people what my mission was. And so, you know, it, it, I, I think I was back here two weeks and I was already, I had, you know, a lot of clients and I'm, I'm still, you know, I still have a good even flow of clients, you know. And um, so it's more about being proactive. It's a, my proactive approach to rescue. Whereas I'd rather, you know, offer you affordable training with, you know, the uh, the end result, you know. Uh, um, but to me, it just, it keeps, I'm, I'm trying to keep dogs out of kennels. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's that's my real driving, you know, force behind that. You know, I'm, I'm never going to be rich training dogs, believe me, you know. <laughs> But yeah, but I, I mean, it's a, it's a very important thing. You know, a lot of people go out and grab a dog. But and, I need it too. I yeah, need, I need I need to be around dogs. You know, I just I need to have. I had so I'm not going to sit here, you know, and say, oh, you know, because it's really selfish too. You know, just I have to have dogs in my life in some aspect or another because they just really keep me grounded. Uh, and there's nothing in my life that has ever given me a deeper sense of purpose than than working with canines. So. Well, it's a win-win yeah. for them, too, for the owners, especially now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I've seen too many people. My dad was a very uh, guilty of this, where he'd go get, you know, an animal. Not always, a, but he brought home, like, some dogs. Look how cool this dog is. And when he realized it was work, the dog went back to the pet shop mm-hmm. or wherever it was from. And, yeah. and to have somebody to actually come and help you or teach you. <laughs> what it is to raise a dog and have yeah. a dog as your as your sidekick in your life, I think that's a very important tool mm-hmm. uh, to be able to show people that. Um, now, with with your dog training, is it? And this is just my personal question: um, Is it a five hundred one c three? Is it a pers- a no, private it's, business? It's is a it private private business? And then your clients, word of mouth, do you advertise? Nine, yeah, really, because the only ever I. Every, my, I mean, I, I got Facebook pages, but yeah, a lot of it is just, you know, recommendations um, from other trainers or uh, the few things I put on, you know, because I, I mean, DBC's page is still active. My personal page is still active. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it is just word, word of mouth and referrals. So All breeds, all types all of dogs. Breeds, yep. And if people want to reach out to you, if they're watching this show from the southeastern Michigan area, well, actually, what if somebody called you from freaking California and said, can you come out for two weeks and train my dog? I mean, if they want, if they want to fly me out, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely would. I, you know, I mean, it's just – there's no limits to what I will do. You know, I mean, I've had clients that were out past Jackson, you know, and just because I would do the phone interview with them, and I, if I just felt and got a feeling from them that they were motivated and they were going to, they weren't going to waste my time, then I, I'll, I'll drive two hours to help you with your dog, you know. So I, I've had clients that were, you know, just all over Michigan, um, and that's the biggest thing is I just, you know, if somebody's motivated to uh, build a better, you know, existence with their canine, I'm all about it. So. Right on, right on. Well, we're sitting here with Bill Bellotti, and, and you know, the whole show has been uh, really amazing because we got introspection into his evolution as a person and what he's done for, for thousands of dogs across this country. Um, we're going to lighten it up a little bit. When's the last time you stepped on a skateboard, Bill? Uh, <laughs> probably uh, Texas, so I'm going to say July, maybe. Oh, all right. It was just before I came back here. So 
We're going to have to get you back on yes. the stick. <laughs> uh, you know, in southeastern <laughs> Michigan, we're getting skate parks all over the map yeah. right now. And that's why I asked you, you know, how big your how big your uh, your boards were because I'm, I'm I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to get back on a board. Yeah, I think you are too, man. Uh, we got a beautiful park in downtown Detroit. Cities are yeah, putting them up all yeah. over. Ferndale, freaking Sterling Heights. I mean, within the next two years, you will not be able to ro- drive a half hour and not hit a skateboard park in southeastern Michigan. And I love it. People ask me a lot. They're like, what do you think of these public parks? I said, I love it. I love it. The more skateboarders, the better. Yeah. Skateboarding changed my life. Exactly. And, Absolutely. And the people in it uh, who are the greatest people on the planet, uh, they ride skateboards or they start. We met through yeah. skateboarding, you know. And, and with you, you know, skateboarding, music, photography, all of that, it, it's a, a great combination and then sobriety, I mean, that's instant brotherhood. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's awesome to have you uh, in the studio. You're welcome back anytime. If folks want to reach out to you, what is their easiest way to, to get a hold of you as far as if they want you to shoot photos for them, train their dog, or just shoot the breeze and pick your brain? My phone. My phone number. Yeah. Can they get that online? I mean, you can give it on this show, but I'm telling you, this show goes all over the world. Yeah. Uh, um, probably my email. My I I probably give out my email. Yeah, but go I ahead mean, and give it out. Uh, my email email is uh, distomedia at gmail dot com. That's d i s t o media at gmail dot com. How'd you come up with the name Disto Media? Uh, it's distorted media. I know but you. Mi- somebody somebody <laughs> took it. So you I misspelled it on it. my photos. <laughs> you you put the photo, uh, and I, I didn't even realize it. And then you, oh yeah, this, yeah. This, I forget what I called. I don't even remember because <laughs> I thought I was spelling it wrong. Because I said I was gonna, they were gonna be worth millions. Because <laughs> <Yeah. of> <laughs> I thought I was spelling it wrong. I'm like crap. I think I, uh, I tagged think it was the like wrong thing. Distorted media. So it was like a, a Y or something. <laughs> Do you have any? Is there any shows coming up? You're going to be out shooting. Anything coming up soon? Um, I'm hoping. Um, I'm hoping to shoot the. Uh, oh my God, the sick of it all agnostic front show that's coming to Detroit. I mean, that's going to be epic. I've, I've personally never seen agnostic front and sick of it all on the same stage. You know, so that to me is going to be a, a pretty epic. You know, epic show. Um, I'm always shooting. You know, uh, smaller venues, and um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not. Um, um, you know, chasing all the big bands. I, I really love shooting the the shows of the up and coming bands or just the bands that, you know, aren't trying to be rock stars. They're just, you know, just their love of music, you know. Uh, so all the small clubs, dive bars everywhere. I'm, I'm, at, I'm at home anywhere, you know. Um, I've shot for Live Nation. I've shot, you know, well, Black Christmas, you know, AEG. But I'm really just as, it's just as fun for me to be at a small dive bar, you know. Sometimes it's more fun because it's more intimate. You know, and you get to be with your friends and you get to, you know, you get to interact more, you know, and it's not so uh, tight and constringent and, you know, corporate. (laughs) Now, this Saturday night, uh, there's a show at Trumbleplex. And I'm going to reach out to Navarro to see because the Suicide Machines are playing Trumbleplex, dude. Oh, really? Saturday night. This Saturday? This Saturday night. 
I'm not even kidding you. And it was like a uh, top secret show for a while. Really? He put out an ad a little, uh, you know, about a week ago. And I spoke with him about it. Uh, Jason Navarro is a singer for the Suicide Machines, and they just came out with a fir- their new record, first yep. one in 15 years. Yep. And Trumbleplex, I mean, what, 200 people? Yeah. It can't hold very much down there. And I was going to reach out to him and say, how do I how do I get in there? Do I just show up exactly. at the door? <laughs> you know, like, how is this going to work? Because how do you how do you put that many people in, uh, in that little tiny place? Exactly. Um, but... Uh, the production team just threw this picture up on on our interview, oh, and I got to ask you about this because you know uh, what a transformation. Yeah. And as a person, mentally, spiritually, physically, what you sent me this picture for a reason, dude. Tell me about this picture. I mean, that, that was just you know that's just, that represents you know I mean on the left side that that was kind of like when I was in. Um, oh, sorry, she warned me about that. Yeah. Uh, you know just. You know, being so stressed out, not taking care of, care of myself, you know, and even saying to myself, you know, oh, I'm, I'm doing so many good things. I'm rescuing dogs and I'm, you know, trying to make everybody happy. But as you can see, I was not taking care of myself at all. And so uh, it was just, you know, I went through a divorce um, earlier this year. Um, and I just, it started this whole, you know, I really thought when I got divorced, you know, after 11 years that I was going to trans send back into that street dog you know like i was being released back into the wild and i was just gonna you know let loose and i didn't it was like this quietness just fell over me and i just got really into my photography i started taking better care of myself eating different things and um i just i got down to and i hit my goal i got down to 175 pounds well you look great i mean i went to the doctor the other day and i was at 174 pounds and i just it felt really good to you know hit that goal and just be healthier and you know uh I, I guess for once, put that much effort into my existence. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you spent so much time in your life giving back and now yeah. paying attention to you because you can't help anybody else if you don't help exactly. yourself. And I had to learn that uh, in a very difficult kind of way. But, um, you know, we're down to the last minute. You know, you gave out your email address. If people want to check out some more of your photos, Instagram, what's your Instagram? Uh, Disto Media, Disto underscore media underscore detroit and then facebook do you pay attention to facebook too yeah it's uh just uh it's distorted media on facebook because uh you know you're always shooting always putting up cool stuff and i love it i i love your photography love the bands love everything love you bill i love you too brother yeah thank (laughs) you so much man uh and thank you guys for sitting here because you just heard i mean if it didn't change if this if this show did not change your life you better check for a pulse that's all i'm saying that's all i'm saying because it changed mine and i want to thank you for experiencing that with us and on that uh just continue to tune in i'm going to bring you the best guests on the planet and it's all to inspire you to get off your damn couch and make life happen it's not a dress rehearsal and it's your job to make the most of it i am gerald valley that's bill Bellotti, and this is the drop-in <laughs>